today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There is a crisis in India, uh, and if you've seen any of the video in the news on Global News over the last couple of days, it's frightening actually to see uh, what's happening there, and even more frightening to see some of the numbers. Uh, give us a little overview as to what's happening. Uh, well, the numbers right now, uh, the number of COVID-19 cases in India is approaching 19 million. Ines Dirqueta is there, and she has this report. It was another world record in terms of daily infections. Several Indian states now running out of COVID-19 vaccines just before a nationwide vaccine effort was set to begin. Gravediggers working around the clock to bury victims. Hundreds cremated through the night in parks and parking lots. The first emergency supplies from the U.S. arriving this morning. Inez Deliquatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. How did things go so bad so quickly? Seemingly, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, it was just a couple of months ago that we seemed to be holding India up as one of the countries that got it right, that did an outstanding job of flattening the curve. Uh, things are, well, in many people's minds out of control right now. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Athena Madan, who is an assistant professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Roads University. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is this is frightening to look at this. Uh, India has added 7.7 million cases since the end of February, when the second wave picked up steam. What what's this happening in this country? What, what why such a quick turnaround? Well, as you said uh, just a few minutes ago, India's COVID cases they're it's approaching 19 million. We see pictures in the news of people in the streets having peers burning bodies. A seven-day average just in the past week has had 340,000 new cases. Um, it's dire. So I have family. I have family in India, and I've been in contact with them over WhatsApp. I've been following the news, and they're uncharacteristically uh, emotional and uncharacteristically afraid in communicating what is happening there, suggesting that the situation is dire. So um, it's the virus is mutating. Uh, that's what the viruses find a way to survive, and uh, we are seeing increased spread in the community because of the lack of ability to contain and the lack of ability to actually vaccinate. How's your family doing? Uh, my family, thankfully, everyone has been safe. There Good. has been some optimism about the rollout of the vaccinations. Um, starting as of Monday, my understanding in some most of the, the popular regions in Delhi is that most uh, people over the age of 18 will be able to be vaccinated uh, after Monday um, with the vaccination rollout. So there is some room for optimism, but there's also a sense of not being able to catch up with what the situation where it currently is. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, we've talked about that. I'm, I'm glad they're they're fine, they're, they're safe, and, and things are going well so far. But you know, I'm, I'm looking at, at you know the, the facts about this. I mean, India, of course, we know is the world's biggest producer of vaccines. Uh, the Moderna vaccines that we get here in Canada, of course, were produced in India, which is why, by the way, uh, or the AstraZeneca, I'm sorry, which is why the slowdown in in the production uh, of change because of you know obviously they need them there. But right. but when you're in a situation like this, and you look at you know, the the we talk about the run on hospitals here uh and that's the impact that they're concerned about about icus hospitals are, are overrun i mean there are basically people knocking on hospital doors saying please take my mother to whoever it is i mean it's, it's such a dire circumstance right now it's almost chaotic isn't it yeah i think it's chaotic precisely because the, the, the system like i mean canada is similar we aren't prepared um and i have read accounts where people are taking uh sick relatives or dying relatives flanked between two people on a motorcycle crossing uh, crossing regional lines and that doesn't help the situation with respect to spread and so because you have people hopping boundary lines between regions 
you've got different variants that we can't even keep up with understanding what the variants are in India. So we are seeing uh, the virus is spreading more and faster than we're able to understand it. Was there a, a tipping point, Professor, that, that started this? I know one of the stories I heard uh, was that when uh, when Modi actually, uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, initiated, I guess it was a lockdown, I guess back in February or so, mm-hmm. and basically I think he gave me like four hours notice, everything shut down. Well, a lot of the workers went back to their towns and villages, and many of them were infected, and that just seemed to be a super spreader incident. Was, was that the beginning of this? You know, I've heard people suggest that. I think that um, the Modi government, I've also, my relatives are suggesting that it operates best under crisis mode, so it could also just be a reactive administration. But from what I'm hearing and what relatives and uh, colleagues are suggesting in India is not only a result of, of an unprepared, but also a complacent government. And I'm not in this situation, uh, it, I'm not an expert in Indian governance, but from what I'm hearing from uh, sources on the ground is that the government has been complacent and there's been a sense of hyper-nationalism that has encouraged a sense of Indian exceptionalism, which the vaccination of production in some in some instances um, contributed to. So when it came to COVID-19, the reality was already that compared to the United States, compared to China, compared to Brazil, young Indians, like you just said, were already um, infected. They were already dying at a higher rate than in the first wave, and specifically in agrarian or farming communities where they had no access uh, to health care. Uh, the decades of, of neglect and in, in, in infrastructure in the healthcare system and building a responsive public health system in India was also partly to blame. Um, and I'm also hearing that there's a certain amount of uh, desire to have social mobili- mobilities intact and entitlement of upper and middle class Indians who are tired of living in lockdown. That's only exacerbated the effects of the healthcare system where resources were already badly and already exacerbated um, and strained under a poor, a poorly resourced system. So with no investment uh, to the needs of the collective well-being or because of the hyper-nationalism, the Modi government has only accentuated the crisis by favoring, um, for lack of a better word, their healthcare buddies in the outside private sector over the last few years. But it was only a couple of months ago that the Prime Minister actually was making international statements and international news by, I, I, I'll use the term, he seemed to almost be bragging about how well they had this under control mm-hmm. and that, you know, they'd, they'd nipped this. Uh, and now this, it's not unusual, as you know, Professor, for politicians to add a little hyperbole to statements like that. But I mean, was, was he creating a false impression there? I think what you just stated about a politician wanting to, I, I guess, to be parrot like to have parallel lessons, what we can learn about that behavior in Canada is that our own public health officials, I recognize that there's a lot of pressures and for them to create allegiances across sectors, but we have also been guilty of having paternalistic, very reassuring public health communication messaging when in fact there's, there's, the numbers are, are not suggesting that. So a lesson that we could also learn is that we perhaps would want to uh, be more transparent in our communication and understand uh, that we that we still the battle isn't over yet. I mean, um, Quebec used to be the epicenter of the COVID response, and, and British Columbia used to be the darling of the mm-hmm. healthcare response. And look at where we are now. Uh, we are seeing in British Columbia, where I'm located, uh, 75% of the rate of COVID IC or COVID-19 ICU admissions. We are seeing 75% more. Uh, ICU admissions than Quebec did, which was once the epicenter. And we actually also exceed the rate of COVID-19 ICU admissions, I believe, than um, some some hospitals in Ontario. So 
I think that we can we can learn from from that behavior. And and, and the, the the stories we've heard too about shortages. But the, I mean the, the the pressure on hospitals I think is self evident. We've seen the videos of those and, and the, the terrible conditions that people are in even after they've been diagnosed and of course been accepted into hospital. Uh, we're told that there's a very large shortage of equipment, uh, shortage of oxygen, which which uh, obviously is something that's used in the treatment of that. Yet that's something that the government is denying and has said that's not the case at all. Uh, is is the truth somewhere in the middle there? You know I would. From everything that I've read, and I just read a headline this morning that um, suggested that Nepal, who has had Nepal has had one case of COVID, they're uh, sending over oxygen and uh, supplies and PPE over to India. I, I I'm not on the ground in India, so my my knowledge may not be correct. But um, everything that I'm reading is that I think it's actually I wouldn't say the truth is in the middle. I think that that's that's just not correct. Which is that they don't have a shortage. Oh, no, I think that there is a significant shortage. Because, I mean, the initial story, I, I, your point's well taken, the initial story were from healthcare experts, and then the government stepped in and said, no, no, that's not the case, that's, just, that's overblown. Uh, again, yeah. trying to make that into a political statement. Yes, I agree with that. And again, the parallel to Canada, I think, is that um, I have colleagues and friends who are working in ER departments, frustrated that no one is listening, no one seems to have listened, no one seems to listen to their warnings or to their experiences, to their emotional stories, and perhaps most frustrating lady to their expertise and their training and their, their knowledge on the ground. So I, I think that that's correct and that um, the healthcare, um, I remember the alarm waving three days ago saying we have no, we have no oxygen and uh, Modi government suggesting this is not true. Um, yeah, I think that's a political posture. I think that's a, a stance that's just political posturing. I mean, so so intense is, is this wave in India right now and, and uh, such a, a taxing element on, on just about every facet of society. This story today I saw, I think it was on CNN, uh, they don't even have firewood. I mean, for, you know, the people that have already died and, of course, they, they want to be properly uh, put to rest and buried, uh, they, they, they're looking for firewood now to be able to do that. I mean, it just, it, the, I guess nobody anticipated it was going to be this bad this soon. Yeah, I, and this is something that strikes me as I hear, I read the tweets, I read the headlines, I hear my family and colleagues telling me about the situation and I'm seeing pictures and it's unbelievable, like it's, it's not imaginable what we're seeing and uh, people are not being able to be buried respectfully or cremated respectfully because they don't have enough, um, they don't have firewood as you, as you'll say, but also in Delhi specifically, the, the air is always poor quality, but even adding those burning cremation piers uh, just creates the inability for the public to breathe in public space. So uh, we are also, I think, going to see an epidemic of people who have not been able to mourn completely or properly. And then I think that impacts long-term mental health, uh, in addition to the mental health of, of having to cope with all of these losses. Is is when we look at these numbers, and they are astronomical, as you just mentioned, Professor, 19 million uh, cases in India right now. Uh, are you are you confident that's an accurate number? Is the reporting mechanism there? From I mean, you talked about large cities like Delhi, as opposed to some of the smaller regions and some of the smaller areas there, uh, where it may not be uh, as 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 reliable in numbers like that. Is there a concern here that that number might actually even be higher? You're correct. I think that a number of people are scared that that is actually a, a gross underestimate given that uh, people aren't able to, the mechanisms are not in place in rural regions um, and in even some of the, like the low class regions don't have, or the low class or the low case areas don't have mechanisms in place to accurately report. And then I think there's also a stigma and shame and people are just 
chaotically busy that they don't have time to publicly report or properly report and document. So I think this is, I think that we are hearing, we can't even in Canada conceptualize what 19 million might uh, look no. like in a small concentrated space of time. Like in, in the past week, there's been um, 800,000 approaches uh, cases. So it's just uh, the numbers are staggering. I don't think that we understand what actually that means and what the long-term impact is. What, what what can the world do? I know President Biden talked about this the other night when he was addressing the uh, the joint session and talked about sending aid and assistance. I assume vaccines are going to be part of that, but but this, there's no quick fix to this, but obviously yeah. we want to be able to do something. What 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 is av- available right now? What's going to help? Yeah, so I, I was thinking of five things. Uh, well, first, I'm glad to hear that Biden has lifted the export ban and is now putting uh, materials or exporting materials available for vaccination production. I think that is significantly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um Canada on Wednesday, April 27th, announced that Canada is providing $10 million in funding for humanitarian assistance to the Canadian Red Cross to support the Indian Red Cross societies. Um, so that's very helpful. But on an individual level, I think there are five things that you and I might be able to do in Canada. Um, in addition to listening to listening to people, um, so first, there's the there's a there's the TRIPS waiver that Canada is a handful of high-income wa- uh, countries led by the U.S. and the European Union in either opposing or creating obstacles to sign agreements for the TRIPS waiver. Um, and, and that's basically to have, regarding patents, copyright, industrial design, and protection of undisclosed information for uh, the vaccination production. So I think one thing we can do is pressure politically people uh, are members of parliament so that Canada can be on the right side of history to sign this waiver, so that India can have access to generic uh, and non-patent, not generic. But I, I just want to stop you there because for patent production for the vaccine. It, yeah, because we talked about that earlier this week, and and some of these patents, we got to remember, these are all for profit companies. Uh, these could be 25, 30 years uh, before yeah. you can start getting into generics. And how many more people would die if, they, if they're going to hold them to that? I think that, that that's just unfathomable to think about how many people will die given just the need for to protect um, not even intellectual property but just business property. So we mm-hmm. need to we need to focus on public health rather than business continuity in that respect. Um, I also think that we are at the point where unfortunately public health officials need to be political activists. Uh, public health guidance is perceived as infringing on civil liberties. Both this fueled the crisis in India, and I see it fueling the crisis here in Canada. That's a problem. People clinging to the idea that they can check out from having to worry is a manifestation of the privilege. And I think we also need to understand from a health equity perspective that uh, our own privileges are linked inextricably with the privileges of the people who are more défavorisé or uh, people in lower-income societies. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to also have just allegiances or not be just not we need to be cognizant of our allegiances as well i think politically to business donors that have as a result created emphasis on the business continuity that uh, is helping fuel the crisis so I, and again i'm not a politician so i don't know what that pressure feels like but john hopkins today pressured an opinion piece reflecting back on the hiv hiv crisis and how um pandering to political allegiances fueled the worst health crisis in history to, at that time um, for people dying of HIV. So local health officials now needing to add politics to their day-to-day list of responsibilities is not helpful. And uh, another thing that we could also do in Canada is to uh, uh, just look at 
messaging with public health, uh, maybe appointing behavioral scientists as part of advisory teams so as to implement more effective messaging for public health compliance so that people can understand what the risks are in ways that are not necessarily only comforting, but helping provide practical guidance so that prevention can be more of a focus. And then also just understanding how our, like I said earlier, our place of privilege is affected by and affects those who are less privileged in not only our communities, but globally in India is is just a salient example of that. So um, a quote that I has stood out in my mind is from a journalist in India saying that people, what he's hearing and the quote reads, our families are dying. We stay up all night hearing their anguish that they've been forgotten. Uh, it's a war zone. Every day is a new day of a family member or a friend sick or dying. And he closes by saying, your Indian friends are not okay right now. Support us. Fight with us. We're exhausted. And I think uh, while we are far away and we can't afford a plane, rightly so, to India to help out with perhaps relief efforts, there are political pressures that we can put on. There's personal health compliance that we can increase in our own sense of awareness. And then also just being aware of the privileges that we hold as, as linked to lack of privileges elsewhere. Exactly. Uh, well stated. And, and you're right, we all have a responsibility. This is not time for platitudes. It's a time for action. And hopefully our governments exactly. and we as individuals can do that as well. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's, it's a horrific situation there. Uh, our, our sympathies and our hearts go out to, to your family and to everyone who's suffering over there right now. And uh, here's hoping that the world does respond to this in, in a timely fashion. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Dr. Athena Madan, Assistant Professor in the School of Humanitarian Studies at Royal Roads University, talking about the terrible situation in India, which is getting worse by the day, by the hour, some might argue as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.